0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series, hosted by the New Books Network, in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and the New Books Network partnership provide a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Lakshweta Malik, and today I'm joined with Dr. Shri Navas, professor at Institute of Liberal Arts and Interdisciplinary Studies, Emerson College. We are in conversation about her book, The Cow in the Elevator, An Anthropology of Wonder, published by Duke University Press 2018. We look forward to hearing from Dr. Sreenivas. Uh, Dr. Srinivas, welcome um, uh, to the podcast. I'm gonna straight away start. I know you're short on time, so I'm gonna straight away start by asking about uh, what this project was about. It's clearly a very long-term project, something you've been working on for a while and thinking about for a while. And one caveat to this book is I when I first started reading this text, I thought the cow in the elevator was a metaphor. It was clearly not. there was an actual cow in an actual elevator. So if you could just give us some background about the project and how you came to work on it.
0: Hello, Lakshita. Um, <clears throat> thanks for having me on the Mobility um, Podcast to talk about my um, last book, The Cow and the Elevator, An Anthropology of Wonder. Uh, so you asked how this project was, sort of what is the inception of this project? And actually, um, I, uh, as I say in the book, I stumbled my way towards it. It was not thought through. Uh, it was not planned. It was just a surrender, serendipity. Stumbling as most uh, as uh, most experiments towards wonder are. Um, I uh, in the mid 90s I was uh, undertaking a dissertation at Boston University and I did not have a topic um, in in anthropology and I um, I didn't have a topic so I had gone home. My hometown is Bangalore. I had gone home. And um, we happened to go to a Ganesha temple in the neighborhood of Malaysia in North Bangalore. Um, my parents, as I say in the book, were not uh, visibly very religious. Religion was a very private matter for them. Um, uh, and and we happened to go to this temple uh, to actually uh, witness uh, someone else's celebration. and. Uh, um, my father, who uh, was uh, an anthropologist, and um, our whole family was sitting on what the there, that is the stone platform underneath it, the banyan tree, and we were watching the priests as they did their business. And he was taking calls from certain devotees. He was um, this is in the days when when um, um, the cell phones were not uh, were not common, so. priest come out of the office with a phone on a long on a tray with a long wire and he would take phone calls he would deal with vendors he was dealing with a bank manager about money he was organizing fruits and flowers for the next day's celebrations and um festivities and so my father happened to say well somebody should study these fellows again um a long tradition in anthropology, of course, being studying studying priests um, and studying ritual. And uh, and I just thought, uh, should I be that someone? And then I thought, no, and I think my father, who as an anthropologist had chosen my dissertation subject for me, so sort I of veered away from it. And it took me a more than sort of 12, 18 months of cogitating about this to realize that, yes, here was something I wanted to study that rituals were changing in Bangalore, and how deep was that change, how wide was that change. And this is at a time when when ritual change was not being discussed in religious studies or anthropology. And I was interested in in how uh, the ritual change occurred, what priests thought of it, what devotees thought of it, how much creativity there was within the scope, within the frame of ritual because at that point, in the mid-'90s to the late-'90s, the assumption was that rituals did not change. Rituals were sort of uh, static, and they represented tradition, which was unchanging. And of course, subsequent to that, there's been a number of scholars who argue that ritual changes are not a mistake, not a failure, um, as um, certain scholars have argued, but rather that uh, ritual creativity exists and, uh, and that ritual is actually changing all the time. And I can think of Amy Aloko, Corinne Dempsey. Um, a lot of scholars have argued that ritual changes repeatedly, changes its form, changes its process, changes its meaning. Uh, but at that moment, in the mid-1990s to late-1990s, nobody had articulated that as yet. And so I was operating pretty much in a black box, um, which was exciting and terrifying all at once. But that was the inception of the project. And then as you say, I um, stumbled over uh, three priests trying to push a cow into an elevator um, to take it to the top floor of an apartment building in Malaysia. And I helped them by holding bananas to lure the cow in and that became the sort of genesis of the title of the book.
1: Right. Thank you so much for sharing that. But that story was it's it's not out of the ordinary, but yeah, it, it was just something interesting about having that just a picture of a person or three people pushing a cow into the elevator. Um the other thing that you talk about, clearly you talked about ritual a lot, right? Uh, you talk about improvisation of ritual, the creative ethic with these priests, right? And that's happening in engagement with this, um, what you call a sense of loss brought on by neoliberal modernity. Um, I was wondering if you can unpack this for us. Uh, who is experiencing the loss, what this loss is in modernity, and you call it a permanent state of liminality, or, or you argue for it, but what does how does ritual fit into this? Right. So in
0: talking about the cow in the elevator, what struck me about the cow in the elevator, I'm thinking about it after my field notes, was that um, precisely uh, your point that it was the the oddity of it, right, the extraordinary in the ordinary, the unexpectedness of it. Now some scholars might argue that I was I was a failure that it was very ordinary for other people who lived in the environment. And perhaps that's true as well. I mean, I'm not making the claim that it was extraordinary for everybody. But I did find it odd. And and so the question began, why is this cow in the elevator? And what is happening? And it turns out the cow goes to the sixth, seventh floor in order to be part of a sort of ancient, supposedly ancient Vedic ritual of making a cow cross a threshold in order to render a new house, uh, pure and and sort of open to inhabitation. And um, so this whole whole point of shoving the cow in the elevator was to to take it to the sixth floor to enact a supposedly ancient ritual. And so there were all these odd juxtapositions that I noticed. in order to make ritual happen and to create uh, a sense of, of of continuity, right, in in uh, in process or in in the feeling of ritual. And um, the question is, of course, why ritual at all? And and the priests answered that for me. They would keep talking about abhuta which I translated uh, as oddity or strangeness, out of placeness, or, uh, uh, which means that which is not of this realm, right? Um, and I later started thinking about it and I realized that they were using it quite differently than I was. And I came to this very late in the, in the study. The study stretched over like 16 years. so um, So I came to it late. And I realized they were using it as a sort of as a wonder, as a sort of uh, both the the magicality and the strangeness of wonder. Mm. And once you think about wonder, you start seeing the ritual creativity as part and parcel of it. Because in order to provoke wonder, one must consistently sort of experiment with form and. Uh, Uh, in order to get to that state. So they're constantly trying to create the conditions in which wonder might occur. Wonder being unpredictable, part of that. So they were constantly trying to create these conditions. So they would introduce new elements or have a sort of experimental form or be very creative, very improvisational with ritual. The point, the end point being that people were amazed and that amazement would reside then with the with supposedly the the um, with God him or herself. And uh, this has a long tradition in myth in India. there's this uh, myth of uh, of of Krishna revealing himself to Arjuna on the battlefield in the Mahabharata, the Vishwarupa, which is all about wonderment and or Krishna opening his mouth. And his mother peering in and seeing the whole world in his mouth to reveal his godliness, so there's this consistent sort of um, thinking about wonderment in in the texts as well the mythological text as well myth and, and uh, sacred texts as well um so so it's drawing from a deep well th- theological well um but in In terms of thinking about why um, a ritual, neoliberal modernity, I found, had a deep sense, a deep disorienting sense for for Bangaloreans, Um, perhaps for all Indians, because it changed uh, a lot of these Bangaloreans were on the sort of margins of the IT industry, which Bangalore is famous for, the information technology and knowledgeware industries. They were working uh, across time zones. They were working with people of different cultures. Um, they would go to work in the middle of the night, based on on the client where the client was located, whether it was Australia or Britain. Um, so they were disoriented in time and in space. Geographically, they inhabited uh, several locales because they would they had to think culturally in either U.S. terms or U.K. terms. They were taught to speak English differently. Um, um, they would be ferried to these uh, sort of Brightly lit offices in darkened Bangalore in the middle of the night by these white matador vans, uh, so they were geographically displaced. They would come home and they would sleep during the daytime. And they were um, in a time space, they were disoriented. They wouldn't be available for the festivities in the temple because they had to be at work. Um, the festivities had to be shifted to accommodate their schedule. So it was all sort of and the city was changing. Because of the money flowing into the cities, a lot of the old houses were being torn down, new apartments were being constructed, the city was constantly sort of being rebuilt before our eyes. So geographically and time-wise, they were disoriented. And so ritual, if that is the constant state, ritual must both accommodate the disorientation And give people a feeling of stability. And what if the point of ritual was not, as Victor Turner argued, to enter ritual and reemerge as a member of the community? Um, What if the ritual itself was a state of permanent liminality? What if the point of ritual was the rupture itself? If you ask that question, then ritual becomes a very different act. It's not about the efficacy of the ritual. It's not about the stability of the society. Rather, it's about how ritual enables you to come to terms with constant disorientation and constant loss and constant rupture, right? Maybe the point is not stability. Maybe the point is rupture. And if that is the case, the questions become very different.
1: Yeah, um, thank you for that. That was very comprehensive. and. This disorientation that you sort of talk about reflects very beautifully in your method and your reflections on your method and writing as well, right? You Your very rich vignettes, they span from the 1990s to the 2000s, and they don't necessarily appear in chronological order. So the reader is sort of along for the ride, as it were. You also talk at length about memory as a site of like uh, drawing from it to sort of conduct research your own sense of disorientation and quote unquote failure in the field and and you talk about all of these different things. I've just wanted you to reflect on your method a little bit with us. I thought that was very fascinating.
0: Oh, thank you. Um my method again was just a continuation of that initial sort of observation at the at the temple when I decided to study the temples. Um it was a stumbling because um there was no way that once, once I observed the rituals over several years, I realized there was no way to sort of pinpoint or to write this linearly. The sense of disorientation was, was uh, everything was imbued with that sense of loss and disorientation for a lot of Bangaloreans. Also a sense of opportunity for many Bangaloreans, given the IT industry. And so part of my mandate was to see this as an experimental folio Into which I put in sort of field notes to give the reader a sense of this one disjuncture after another. That this is not a seamless, sort of uh, professionally built narrative, but rather one where I was um, constantly pushed and pulled at by various forces. I wanted to, I wanted the book to show. That sense of, of rupture constantly of attention being shifted um not of a n- not of a seamless professional sort of top down um, uh, um, expert voice, but rather the experience that I felt in the field should be reflected in the text um, uh, I'm grateful that it came through and i Saw my fieldwork as a series of failures. Um, I still do. Uh, there was no way to to wrap my head around what was happening in Bangalore or um, the rituals um, and their ever shifting nature. In fact, the rituals sort of fell away, but they became a lens by which I could see the larger cultural tides that were unmooring many of Bangalore, many many Bangaloreans and um, the larger sort of geopolitical and geoeconomic tides. Um And uh, the, the, the sense of wonder that they felt at being a part of this ever-shifting world was also important to me. But my fieldwork was a series of failures. I failed to grasp so much of what was going on at the time. Um, I was, as I put it, uh, uh, ungodly in a sense to them i was uh, I was an upper caste woman who should behave in certain ways, which I didn't, and so they viewed me as a failure as well um and 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 I had to learn how to be in order to do field work um and those were a series of failures um, and I wanted other field workers to understand that failure um to sort of empathize with my failure, because fieldwork is a series of failures, and all we do when we write is we gloss over the failures and pretend that that the that the failure was exactly who we were, when in point of fact, um, I wanted students to understand that a series of failures can yield beautiful data. Uh, that was not that it was not incumbent on me to be professionally acute. Rather, the data was like drinking from a fire hose. I just couldn't keep up, and mm-hmm. I was Ill- ill-equipped to do so. Right. Ah, uh, and uh, I'm glad that that shone through.
1: No, that was yeah. I, I, the book is so accessibly written, and and that sort of came through in that. And and yeah, the other thing that I was really struck by. Sorry, I'm speeding. I just have to get through a lot of questions, but. Uh, <laughs> One thing that I was struck by, and you talk about wonder in various capacities, you have a philosophical discussion about it in the beginning of the text. You are very much talking about wonder in the everyday capacity. You aren't talking about big, spectacular, uh, like it's not an Akshardham temple in Delhi, you know, built with like a lot of investment and it's like a global eye catching thing and an event, but it's very much built into the routine it's not supposed to shatter routine or create new routines right it's very much trying to amend uh, routines in a certain way and and fit in there and maybe change it a little bit but what does that that scalar aspect of wonder what does that do for you
0: that's exactly right um the wonder is not merely spectacle though it could be rather that um that it's extraordinary in the ordinary right as Vinada says, This is is sort of minuscule intimate shift that localites pick up on, devotees who call themselves localites pick up on. And cumulatively, they actually shift the ritual quite a bit. But in the moment, they are glossed over. They are recognized and seen as innovative and seen as experimental, but they are glossed over. This is not a sort of uh, emplacement of Something that everyone universally seen as wondrous, sees as wondrous and spectacular, like Akshardham. This is intimate, minute, and yet because of its innovation, creates the conditions for wondrous. That is the sort of uh, wondrousness of it that it can, um, it can be passed by quite easily, and this is part of being embedded in a field for a very long time, that over the course of those 16 years, I did see cumulative differences, which did shift quite considerably. Um, But in point of fact, if one just drops into a temple and watches even for a year, one could not get that sense. I think it would be difficult to harness um, what exactly was changing. And so my speculation is then that some a fundamental sort of processual point of ritual is it's changing nature. Um, and, and that embedded in the ritual is the DNA for change. And what we see as unchanging is just what we remember from maybe a lifetime or two lifetimes ago. What we hear from our grandparents that this is the way to do things. is what they know. But in point of fact, it has changed even in that iteration. So it is constantly changing. It's constantly, and this is because Hinduism is very much a religion, a process, and a practice, and not necessarily sort of the liturgical text is not the the last word on it. But the ritual is constantly fluid. It's constantly in flux uh, what we can as Krishna Butter, one of the priests tells me, is what we can rely on is the fact that it changes. The world changes, and we change with it. Uh, and I think this sense of adaptability is really key to Hindu rituals' longevity over time.
1: Right. Uh, thank you. The other thing that was sort of very interesting about, and you talk about money and gold and all of these things, but one thing that I want to sort of focus on right now is the idea of technology and Idea of not just the priests, but also um, the devotees, sort of partaking new technologies. You mentioned this woman uh, called Padma, who is constantly taking pictures uh, of the of festivals and and all the f- uh, prayers that are happening. And she's sort of an archivist, right? She You talk about it like that. I'm wondering how there is a difference. Do different devotees participate differently? What about people who don't have the kind of technology? right? Or what what does that difference look like? Because in the beginning, you mentioned that you tried to take pictures, but you were stopped, right? Because they didn't want you taking pictures at that point in time. But how, how does this sort of, is there a disparity in which people participate in rituals and what does that look like?
0: So, yes, um, uh, there is a disparity. But let me first address um, Padma, the um, sort of temple archivist, and my relationship with her. So when I first entered the field in the late 1990s, um, it was forbidden to take photographs of the, of the deity or even of the temple space. And the priests would be very quick to stop me. And that's com- that used to be common in most temples in India, that you could not photograph the image. The idea being that the the camera being a sort of a technological instrument and and this was a belief in India about human beings as well. It would grab the spirit of of that thing that it was photographing and hold it as a machine would and so the relationship between the machine and the d t was really interesting to me, but as uh cell phones become more and more. Um, sort of incorporated into the larger sort of economic and social space of India as happens in the late 90s, early 2000s, mid 2000s. By 2006, the cell phone is ubiquitous in India because of a push out of China for the Samsung and, and Korea, a huge volume of sales across India and cheap cell phone providers. So the cell phone becomes ubiquitous. And the minute the cell phone becomes ubiquitous, Photographs become sort of commonplace. Photographing one another in the temple space, seeing it as more a tourist, then photographing the, the idol dressed up, photographing the priests, then photographing one another, taking selfies. So the temple space becomes like any other public space. And so the, the barriers to photographing the image are broken down so in 1999 i'm forbidden by 2002 they tell me yeah you can take photographs in the temple but not of the image by 2006 everyone is taking photographs of the image and by 2009 i'm told here you should photograph this you know i'm used as an aid memoir like photograph this and we'll ask you for it right and now very frequently the priests will just send me sort of um, Photographs of the deity, or they'll send me short video clips of them doing a puja on WhatsApp. And so the whole technological sort of the technoscape that Apadare describes uh, sort of catches the religioscape in its mesh. And Bangalore, being at the cutting edge of technology, um, many of the of the localites were embedded in this technoscape already. So they were very um, they knew how to use geospatial markers. They knew how to use WhatsApp. They knew how to use Facebook. They knew how to use social media. They knew how to use um, sort of uh, how to um, tag the temple. They knew all sorts of things that I did not know, right? Um, and so slowly the temple started having, uh, for different pujas, they started having scanned barcodes. So you take your phone, you scan a barcode, and you can pay with an electronic payment and have the puja done which you couldn't when I started. You had to produce Indian money. You had to go to the temple accountant. You had to buy a little paper ticket and present it to the priest. And all that was cut off. right? You just scanned your barcode, you showed the priest, and then the puja would be done. So they were, and this was by the mid-2000s. So they were sort of leapfrogging uh, using technological innovation. Now it is true then that people who don't have access to technology are shut out of certain realms of innovation and certain ways of of sort of uh, attending to the temple space. Um, certain forms of attention um, uh, which uh, Jonathan Z Smith, Z Smith uses, uh, he says ritual is a mode of paying attention. um and so certain forms of modes of paying attention are lost based on who has access and who doesn't. But that has traditionally been true as well. I mean, caste is the perfect example that um in certain realms only certain people can gain access and others cannot so so we know that due to due to um class difference poverty due to caste etc, people are frequently um historically left out of certain sort of ways of accessing temple and accessing ritual so this is not new it's just a question of who was left out versus who has access and so that becomes sort of um that becomes sort of um part and parcel of temple life Mm
1: -hmm.
0: yeah
1: right no thank you for that um i'm gonna ask another very short question just because i was very intrigued by how money and aesthetics of money were sort of used within the temple not for money for exchange but very much there was an investment in the aesthetics of money there were money garlands all over the place for the deity and and what is this aesthetic valorization and and what does that what place does that have within the ritual within the temple life and and could you just yeah think about that with us and you also call it a critique of capitalist norms right at a certain level so i was wondering if you could unpack that for us right
0: um let me since i was disturbed in the last uh last answer let me go back to it a bit and then address this question of money um so so you asked how lack of technology might prevent access and i said i agree lack of technology does prevent certain forms of access um Uh, and certain sort of high status forms of access. The kind of access you get with a fancy new cell phone is quite different from the kind of access you might get through uh, buying the paper ticket.
1: Um,
0: But as I said, um, hierarchy is inbuilt into sort of um, uh, social structure in India. And so there have always been people, um, if you take um, sort of lower caste, or you take uh, Dalits, of course, are completely excluded. Um, if you take um, uh, from uh, from upper caste temples, if you take sort of uh, dominant caste, the the rituals are structured in certain ways as to uh, accommodate certain people, not accommodate other people, and um, and different sectarian groups have certain access to different sectarian temples. Now. Um, According to law, this has changed that everyone should have access to uh, religious sites, but of course in in terms of 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 um, how it works, that is not true at all. Uh and shameful to say um Dalit groups are still not allowed in many temples. There's been extreme violence against them. Um as, in fact the temple is closed to 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 Many groups of people. As a woman, I frequently could not catch sight of the deity at all because he was surrounded by a phalanx of men. And the women in the temple rebelled. Um, traditionally, uh Vedic ritual is not supposed to be sung by women. Um, the Voshti, uh, the, the 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 sort of Vedic recitation core, were all men. Um, when I started out, but in the middle, the women re- rebel and they go, Why can't we also? particularly the women who are elderly because they are no longer fertile and therefore they don't have the pollution of menstruation or childbirth. Um, they rebelled and they said, we also want to sing. And the priest said, okay. So you see very slow incremental social change, uh, but that does not mean that there isn't any inherent violence for the hierarchy within the temple. Uh, so I want to make that clear. Um, technology is only the, the sort of leading edge of, of the different separations that occur. Mm-hmm. No, uh, um, with regard to money, uh, money is naturally spectacular. Um, it's held by very few, or it used to be held by very few in India. Um, India was largely poor, and therefore, having many, money was seen as a symbol of God's blessing. No? Uh, however, with neoliberalism, More and more of uh, Indians, particularly in Bangalore, have entered the middle class, and some are significantly wealthy. And so the temples are becoming progressively wealthier and wealthier in Bangalore. Um, And so the need, the threshold for spectacle becomes greater and greater, higher and higher. Uh, And money is because of our traditional lack of access to it. I mean, not many people had money. In my parents' generation, you had to save an entire lifetime to build a house or have an apartment. Nowadays, people put a down payment at their first job, right? So the, the sort of democratization of of uh, of uh, the entry into the middle class has been has been a liberatory for many people um, in Bangalore. But money is still revered as as sort of a blessing from God. Gods are frequently allied with money. There's this myth about uh, Tirupati, where the God is in debt, and so um, every uh, every bit of money that's given to him is towards this sort of divine debt. And uh, so the spectacular nature of money in Tirupati, uh, the amount that's collected, it's second only to the Vatican in wealth. The the gold the diamonds are are something that uh, neighborhood priests try to emulate, right? So a diamond crown for the god, or a gold sort of breastplate. All this is signs of the god's god's sort of bounty and power. Um, so there's a sort of prosperity doctrine there. So if you are blessed, you will have money, or ma- money is a sign of blessing. One could make that equation. Uh, and one could therefore say that people who don't have money um, are ill-wished, right? There's something wrong with them, which is a terrible, terrible thing. Uh, it's a case against sort of a social contract. Um, it goes in line with middle classes treating servants horribly, you know, that kind of thinking that you must have done something to receive this, if not in this life, then in previous life. So there's a judgment, a moral judgment there, but on the other hand, there's also the sort of sheer visual appeal of money, right? Its shininess, its um, its uh, sort of uh, magical quality, the um, um, and shininess is akin to dazzling, and bewitchment. Um, and and gods are seen as bewitching and dazzling, right, in their light, in their illumination. So there's a sort of real sort of physical and material connection between the form of money, particularly cash money, and the form of the god. Uh, and so this, this dazzling shininess, this allure, uh, also enhanced by lighting, digital lighting, um, the paper money has different colors. It's aesthetically sort of pleasing when folded in certain ways. You know, in India, uh, we we garland politicians with garlands of money, which is sort of a sort of a, a wonderful visual metaphor of corruption. Right? Uh, I mean, it is. You garland a politician with money. There's no other way of saying this is bribery, pure and simple. But it's an aesthetic bribery. It's an aesthetic. I mean what does it mean when you garland a politician with 500 rupee notes, right? Thousands of them. So it's sort of the openness, the transparency of the bribery, the transparency of the connection is made clear in the aesthetic valorization of it. Um, and that is true of the God. I mean, if you're bribing politicians with money and you want them to do something, to grease the wheels that you're doing something, so much more with God. If you want the ritual to be efficacious, And you want to be protected. You want to adore God, um, in order for that prophylactic to work. That God should bless you. That God should protect you. Right. And middle class Indians, Hindu Indians, more than anyone else, have made this connection across runs. That you know, um, theologians have taught Hinduism as an otherworldly enterprise because it's focused on salvations. It's focused on karma. But in point of fact, Hindus are very pragmatic. They have made this translation across Arabs. So if you can garland a politician with money, then you garland a god with more money. I mean, it's it's sort of so simplistic and so literal um, that I wanted to make that. I saw it, and so I wanted to make the case. And frequently, a lot of this money is not has not been taxed. I mean, the temples are not taxed because they're religious. Uh, places, I mean the religious institutions but a lot of the money that flows through the temple is dark money. It's what in India is called black money and so um, one should question the ethics of taking money that is not taxed, that has evaded the social contract and offering it to the god right? but it's done in many urban temples in Bangalore and across India when people are frightened of the tax man coming after them, they will go and deposit diamond necklaces or bags of money in um in um the offering plates in temples all across it as a sort of protectionary device. So one has to think about the ethics of what that what is going on in the minds of Indo Indians. Uh and what then the social contract, what is a good life? What does the social contract mean in these cases? That's what I was trying to get at in that chapter.
1: No, that was, yeah. I, thank you so much for like, just talking about this whole wondrous economy or economy of wonder, if you will. Um, I'm very mindful of the time. I'm going to leave you with one last question about um, asking you what you're going to be working on next. What should the readers expect? And um, yeah, if you want to just share that with us.
0: Sure. Um the cow in the elevator is first of, of uh, uh, at least um, uh, three projects um, on Bangalore to illuminate uh, modernity or neoliberal modernity. Um, the first one is about ritual, uh, which is the cow in the elevator. The second one, which I'm in the process of finishing, is um, is a book about beauty parlors and and uh, Seemingly quite different from the ritual space of the temple, but in fact, um, strangely, in some ways, similar. Um, in this, I um, in this particular book, I'm writing about migrant women from the northeast of India, who worship a deity known as Kabakya Devi, um, uh, at uh, who is um, sort of a part of the sundering of the body of Shakti. The myth is that her uh, vagina falls in, um, uh, falls and becomes Kama Devi. and so these women from the northeast, who are migrant women who come to Bangalore under extreme sort of wretched circumstances, and uh, while it is lauded by neoliberal India as uh, women's entrepreneurship, these rickety beauty parlors and uh, salons. Um, where these women work from sort of 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. for six days a week um, in backbreaking breaking conditions, um, actually are sort of work traps for them. And what happened when COVID struck and when the migrants were forced to walk back to their homes or when ethnic riots against migrants rocked Bangalore two years ago and what happens to these women as a result. And how everyday middle class women go to these beauty parlors um, on a day to day basis and get themselves waxed, so uh, and threaded, and their faces bleached, and and what this work of beauty actually involves. Nancy at Carthage said um, there's an ugliness to beauty, and I wanted to look at the work of beauty, like what is beauty work? Um, beauty is supposed to be something godly, right? That that. That is divine. That isn't sort of one is born with. But in point of fact, people work very hard. Beauty is an aspirational category, and uh, and uh, middle class women spend an inordinate amount of time and being attended to by other women, usually of lower caste and lower class, migrant women. So it looks at um, it. It it looks at the goddess in the parlor. Um, both the sort of the divine goddesses, Kamakya Devi, Mother Mary, that the parlour girls worship, and uh, many of these parlour girls, both Christian and Hindu, get possessed very frequently. And the question is of course why, and one can look to Sekre and others to think about why and sort of. So I'm trying a sort of uh, feminist theology of the parlour. And then the next book I'm working on is about ecological destruction in Bangalore. And uh, it's called The Absent Goddess. It's about a lake that bursts into flame repeatedly. And all three of these projects are interlinked um, by figures who cross across. Some of the female devotees from the temple show up at the parlors. Um, Some of the people at the parlors show up at the lake. And so, so you get this movement across space of Bangalore. And so it's trying to illuminate a whole host of problems. Um, so it's an anthropology of wonder was the first one. And anthropology of beauty is the second one. And the third one is an anthropology of apprehension. Um, and I hope to illuminate uh, what's happening in India and, uh, and a sense of sort of, uh, uh, a sense of uh, an anterior future that neoliberalism brings to us.
1: Right. I Well, everybody I'm sure is looking forward to those. They sound fascinating, all of your works, and we're looking forward to that. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Srinivas, and for all of your uh, wonderful insights. I am Lakshata Malik, and this discussion of Cow in the Elevator, published by Duke University Press in 2018, has been brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you so much for listening.